Happy New Year. It's coming up just a few hours away, 2018. Are you ready for a new year? How many of you have actually thought through some New Year's resolutions? Anybody think through some New Year's resolutions, what you're going to do differently? Okay, well, that's, that's good. In a different area, maybe in sports or business, you might call them your, the key performance indicators. What are the key performance indicators that you're going to look at for the next year? They'll, they'll define whether or not you're successful or not in that area. So like if you're, uh, say, the coach of a sports team, you might say, okay, our key performance indicator is going to be we're not going to be 8 and 5 next year. We're going to be 10 and 3. So that might be an indicator. And so you could use this, so many different ones, but normally for us we would call them uh, New Year's resolutions. And churches would have these as well. My caution for us today is as we think through New Year's resolutions is not to get so caught up in maybe inappropriate things, uh, things that might not really give us long-term bang for the buck. Uh, I, I think that the fact of the matter is a lot of us, a lot of us, whether we're or whether we, we, we tend to under-expect the right godly Biblical value and anticipate the wrong things. And when we do that, if we don't be disillusioned, uh, defeated, discouraged, depressed, unhappy, and certainly out of sync with what the gospel narrative is all about. Uh, Jesus himself actually taught his disciples not to expect too little. Uh, for example, we looked at this as we're going through the book of Mark uh, when Philip when they were challenged to provide, you know, food for the multitude, uh, Philip goes, wow, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough uh, for each to get even just a little bit of bread. And so Jesus warned them, you know, you're expecting too little. And so he didn't expect enough of what God would actually do, how God would uh, provide. On the other hand, Jesus also warns us not to expect too much. He warned his disciples, don't expect too much honor. Uh, because he said, you're going to come to a place when you're offered to sit, and you don't sit in that position of honor. Or don't expect too much peace, because there's going to be a time coming when there'll be division. Or don't expect too much respect. Uh, if they persecuted me, uh, they're also going to persecute you as well. Don't expect too much authority. And then he challenges all of his disciples, if, if you really want to be great, it's going to mean becoming a servant, not just a servant, but it means that you're going to have to become a slave as well. He also warned against too much prosperity. He says, you know, look, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but even the Son of Man doesn't have a place uh, to lay his head. So there is an what I'm trying to suggest is that when we look at New Year's resolutions, when we look at goals, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some wonderful, wonderful key performance indicators. We're going to be looking at some awesome things that we really should concentrate on. And I'm thankful that, that Doug set this series up. And so this is sort of an introduction to the series for us to really focus in on those things that really, really matter. And the, the Bible makes it really clear uh, that there's a, a huge comparison and contrast between key performance indicators of the world and key performance indicators of 
of a godly man or, or a woman. Let me just read this one passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish of the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So this passage is a comparison and contrast between what you might want to call worldly success and spiritual success. And, and I've just made some broad categories, and, and you could even expand it. But for example, worldly success, you know, when he sort of compares and contrasts, we'll look at another passage later on, wisdom versus maybe you might use the word intelligence. And we think that if we can just become smarter, if we can just get maybe some extra degrees, uh, then boy, things will be a whole lot whole lot better. You know, the smarter, smarter we are, the happier we'll be. And, and I am not at all suggesting, don't think I am, not for one minute, that education isn't beneficial or profitable or necessary. But by itself, in isolation, without wisdom from God, it can really cause us to overexpect the wrong things in life. And it can also cause us to under-expect the things that God really wants us to concentrate on. So you might certainly have as a KPI to advance your degree, and that's awesome, as long as it's balanced with a dedication to grow in wisdom, to grow in wisdom uh, in God's Word. You know, you're going to be spending time on your degree, but are you also spending time in God's Word uh, to learn to be the man of God, the woman of God that He wants you to be? Or things like money, power, productivity, all of these things. The world teaches us that if we can just increase in those things, you know, whether it be to attain or save or max or maximize or position, authority, output, etc. Um, it was interesting to me, we, we did um, a, a little thing as, as a staff, and we were looking at the millennial generation, and, and we had some statistics, and Doug, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was the millennial generation, how the millennial generation, one of the things that they highly prize and highly value is that they want to become financially independent by the time they're in their 30s. And so I looked, at, looked into this quite a bit, and it's very, very true. I mean, even some of the some of the podcasts now that are the most popular, there's one that's the most popular financial podcast now, it's called Choose FI, Choose Financial Independence, and it's by these two millennial guys. One was a pharmacist, one was a, um, a CPA, and they've now in just two years, they have the most popular financial podcast there is, and it's Choose Financial Independence, and they call it the FIRE community, F-I-R-E, Financial Independence, Retire Early. And, and, and actually, I mean, I'm not bashing the podcast because it is really one of the best financial podcasts I've ever listened to. As long as it's balanced, it's balanced with is becoming financially independent an end or is it really a means to an end? Do you want to become financially independent so that you can be a blessing to others? 
Do you want to become financially independent so that you can serve others, so that, so that you can be used by God, serve God, glorify God? You know, if so, you know, it, it might be one of the most awesome things in the world. So I'm not bashing it. I'm just trying to show that whenever you set your KPIs, you, you better. There's a whole uh, system of KPIs that God introduces us to that are absolutely critically important. It talks about the comparison and contrast between being powerful and noble birth, high rank, all those kinds of things. Uh, and people look at reputation. They, they look at all these things and they think, well, this is what I want. This is what I want for the new year. And I go, is it really? Are, are you sure this is what you want? And, you know, so people, you know, dress for success, all of these things. And, and it's even, I was reading this one thing uh, by some neurologists and they were talking about the impact of what you wear that it has on the minds of other people. How it actually, when, when you, quote unquote, use that word, dress for success, it talks about the reward pathway that you stimulate in other people's brains. You know, starting with the VTA, releasing dopamine, going to the nucleus accumens, re releasing endorphins, opioid peptides. You know, it's that whole reward pathway that starts. Uh, you know, and then I think, well, what about Jesus? What about John the Baptist? What, what did they wear? What, what did they look like? You know, so somehow there has, there has to be a balance. I wouldn't say John the Baptist was dressed for success, walking around in this, you know, eating wild honey and, and you know, just, you know, looking like Paul Bunyan or something. Um, so there are just, there are other things we need to consider when we, when we look at our uh, New Year's resolutions. I'll never forget uh, good friends of ours, Paul and Robin Johnson. Some of you might, if, if you think back, some of you might remember him. Paul Johnson grew up in the jungles of South America with New Tribes Missions, and his whole life was spent reaching unreached tribes uh, for Christ. And so when he came back, he's now the president of Altaca uh, Ministries. And uh, so it was a number of years ago, he went to the largest Christian, uh, sorry, third largest Christian school in America, I don't know if it still is, but it was in, actually in Baltimore, uh, Arlington Baptist School in Baltimore. And he, he surveyed the classrooms. He surveyed two eighth grade classes, one 10th grade, one 11th, and two 12th grade classes. And in the survey, he asked the students one question. He said, when you blow away all the smoke and blow away all the words, what do the significant Christian adults in your life really live for? Blow away all the smoke. What do they really live for? In all of those classes, the first one was all the same. Money. That was number one on the list. Number two, material wealth. When you blow away all the smoke, and this is the third largest Christian school in the United States. Money was number one. Material wealth was number two. And then numbers... Uh, three, four, five, and six were all the same, but in a different order. So they were uh, family, popularity, power, or influence. Popularity would be fame. Pleasure would be leisure. All those were, were in there. And then I look at this passage, and I think, how success biblically is so different. It's so different. And 1 Corinthians, a passage that we read, begins to underscore some of the differences. And I just sort of cataloged, uh, why are they so different? What makes them so different? 
And I thought, well, first of all, spiritual success is without a doubt so countercultural. I don't know if you remember the Broadway play, My Friend Gus, but it's about a, a dad who is a very, very successful uh, business person. And I mean, this guy, when you look at success, he checked the box. He was a success. He was so successful, though, he lost his wife, losing his family. His wife leaves. He, now he's left uh, with his son. He's trying to raise a son. And he's not doing the greatest job there. He sends him to the best Christian school he could find, sends him to school. And um, so then the teacher of his son uh, decided, decided that every parent should spend a whole day uh, at school with their son. And uh, so he just he couldn't get the time to do it. So instead, he sent an entire playground of equipment to the school because he couldn't be there for the day. And uh, so this very wise teacher uh, sends the equipment back and a note to the man's office. And it says, as a gift, this is far too much. But as a substitute for you, it is far too little. You see, spiritual success is often very countercultural. Or in Luke 16, we read, no servant can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate the one and love the other, or he's going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money, in other words, what? They overexpected its value, right? They loved money. They, they overexpected what it could do. They heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus and he said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued, listen, what is highly valued amongst men, what they overexpect, is detestable in God's sight. You know, Solomon went, here he is, Solomon, listen, he's the wisest man who ever lived. And, and he you just read the book of Ecclesiastes. But before you set your New Year's resolutions, read the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon goes through the whole litany of what's important in life. He's overexpecting the things of little value. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than any other who's ruled in Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge or intelligence. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a, it's just a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. No. Paul, and just read through the book of Ecclesiastes. He gets to the end of it. You know, there's one thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. So blow away all the smoke. I mean, you look at chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, he goes through pleasure, he goes through money, he goes through material wealth, he goes through all those things we just mentioned. He goes, yeah, they're, they're soap bubbles. He uses the word vanity. It's, it's all just vanity. Soap bubbles. Meaningless. You know, and Paul encourages us to value the KPIs that the world under-expects. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, before you set your New Year's resolutions, just remember, success in the world's eyes can be radically countercultural. 
to what God, well, what God calls success is countercultural to what the world calls success. And it also, spiritual sex, success will totally transcend temporal applause. You know, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Chicago. Probably most of you have been there and Lakeshore Drive. Everybody's familiar with Lakeshore Drive. You go from Wrigley Field out to the ocean, out to the, to the lake, Lake Michigan, and you'll have Lakeshore Drive. If you go north on Lakeshore Drive, you'll run into uh, what now is the Edgewater Beach Apartments. Uh, they were built in the 20s, 1920s, 1927. And, but before, 11 years before that, was the Edge, Edgewater Beach Hotel. One of the most grand hotels ever built. It was built in 1916 uh, by Marshall and Fox for the grand sum of $3 million. And uh, it's a wonderful hotel. And they, they tore it down in the 60s to build up other stuff. But the, but the apartments are still there. Um, there, was, there was a meeting there of, of the, mo the world's most successful financiers. It was in 1923. So how many of you invest with Charles Schwab? Charles Schwab was there. Charles Schwab, he's the president of the largest independent steel company. Uh, Samuel Insull, who was the president of the largest utility company. Howard Hobson, president of the largest gas company. Arthur Cotton, he's an a incredible wheat speculator. Richard Whitney, who's the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall, he was the, in the president's cabinet. Leon Frazier is the president of Bank of International Settlements. Jesse Livermore, a great Wall Street speculator. Ivar Kruger, who is the head of the greatest monopoly. Here are the nine greatest financial financiers in the world. They were all there, 1923, Edgewater Beach uh, Hotel. And uh, they were talking about you know, money, how to make more money, uh, how to influence, et cetera. Like, and yet, 20, just, just 25 years later, just 25 years later, you look at their lives. How many of you said you invested with Charles Schwab? Uh, just pray that your life doesn't end like his. He died in bankruptcy after living on borrowed money for five years before his death. Samuel Insull died a fugitive from, in, from justice and penniless in a foreign land. Howard Hobson, insane. Arthur Cotton, Died abroad, insolvent. Richard Whitney, he had already spent time in Sing Sing. Albert Fall, he had been pardoned so that he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, Ivar Kruger, Leon Frazier, all died by suicide. Every single one of these men had learned the art of worldly success. Every one of those nine, nine guys received tremendous temporal applause, but none of them had discovered the secrets of what spiritual success was all about. And that's what we're going to be talking about over these next few weeks that are so critical for your life. So spiritual success transcends temporal applause. Just spend some time today Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. It says all of these, and he's talk, he was talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, all of them died in faith. 
Not like these other nine guys, but all of them died in faith, having, uh, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You know, temporal applause will always result in a couple of misconceptions. Uh, number one misconception you'll have is bigger is better. Bigger is better. That's temporal applause. Bigger is better can easily degenerate into some ego-building goal that demands to be self-fed. Just think of Zechariah. I mean, that was Israel after, after the return from exile. You know, when they wept because the, the temple wasn't as big as they thought it should be. Zechariah says, who despises the day of small things? Listen, and believe me, I, this is not a plea for mediocrity or poverty or self-asceticism. Uh, it's just, it's a plea. God, what is your will for my life that I may bring you glory? That's the plea. It's not a plea for poverty. So don't misunderstand me. The second misconception is just being healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's, that's God's blessing. Well, if so, I'll tell you what. A lot of the major and minor prophets were utter, dismal, horrible failures. That's the same logic the disciples use. Well, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. Jesus said it was neither. But it was that through this guy, God might be glorified. Thirdly, spiritual success is reserved for the humble of heart, not for the proud and the powerful. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. You know, the, the, listen, the world looks at high rank. The world just looks for power and importance, reputation. But, but listen to God in 1 Corinthians 1. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Listen, if you want to just hone in on spiritual success, just remember that spiritual success is very content to focus on the process rather than just the product. I was reading this book. It's so good. It's, it's by a, a pediatric endocrinologist. It's the hijacking of the American mind. And it, it talks about, you know, the dopamine and serotonin and all the pathways. And it's just incredibly fascinating. And, and what, what hits me is that what's so true in our bodies is just manifested spiritually how God designed. This is how God designed us. It shouldn't be a surprise. And, and all of the product kinds of things are all dopamine-fed. And they demand more. And the things that God lifts up and values, it's all driven by serotonin. 
which leads to, and I'll use the biblical term, that he, he would use the word happiness. I would use the word, the biblical term, joy. And he would also use this word, contentment. And the only, the only way you're going to be joyful and content is when your focus isn't product-oriented, but it's process-oriented. That's what, in, in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And contentment is only a real possibility when you view the process as far more important than just the product. It's not just the end, it's the means to the end. I mean, that's exactly how Paul spelled success with the gospel. Paul called success, it wasn't how many people trusted Christ. It was, am I faithful planting, not the reaping? God is the one responsible for the reaping. He's the one who causes the growth. 1 Corinthians 3, I planted Apollos watered. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are, not, are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. So if there's going to be contentment, then the focus has got to be process-oriented. And that's what we're going to be talking We're going to be talking about prayer. We're going to be talking about worship. We're talking now about, are you really spending time? It's not just the end product of the knowledge. It's, are you spending time daily in God's Word? I hope that's one of your KPIs. Are you spending time daily in God's Word? Are you spending time in fellowship? We'll never be more satisfied and content with much someday than we are today with little. Because genuine joy, genuine contentment isn't product driven. In other words, if you aren't content with the amount of money you have, that you have right now, that you're making right now, you'll never be content making more, twice as much, three times as much, four times as much. If you aren't content today in the house that you live in, you're not going to be content if you buy a bigger one. If you aren't content with your present job, you're probably, if you're just looking for another one, it's probably not going to be the answer either. Or if you aren't content with your family while they're young, I'll guarantee you, you're not going to be content with them when they're old. If you're not content with your present body, changing it, you're probably not going to be content with it then either. Again, I am not saying it's not appropriate to do some things as long as it's for the right reason, driven by the Lord. Enough is never enough when you have the wrong view of success. So, I mean, so what does God want us to do? What's God's remedy? If we're, if, look, this is, this is New Year's Eve. You've got today, you've got tomorrow to look at the rest of the year. That's why I'm driving on this. You underscore what's really important for you, for the Lord. Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says the greatest man that ever lived was John the Baptist. There hasn't arisen anyone get greater than John the Baptist. But he didn't fit any of the world's standards. He gets beheaded by some teenage girl in a party as a party favor. So how do you know if you're on the right track? Well, 
then what are your what are your KPIs? What are they? Write them down. I hope faithfulness is down there for you. Being faithful. I, I hope it's faithful, and we're going to see this over the next few weeks. I hope it's faithful uh, to worship God. I, I hope it's faithful in prayer. I hope it's faithful in the Word of God. I hope it's faithful in fellowship with other believers. I hope it's faithful in service. I hope it's faithful in generosity and stewardship. I hope faithfulness is one of your KPIs. I, I pray to God it's servanthood. Over being served, I pray to God one of your KPIs is how can I serve and be a blessing to other people? How can I use my time and my talents for the Lord? How can I pursue selfless love, relationships, and Christ-likeness? You know what these KPIs will do? You start thinking this way. And it's going to impact your strategy for life. I'll tell you what your strategy in life should be. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. That's my strategy. First John 2. Say, I, I, I've got them written down on the front of my, every Bible I have. I have my mission in life, my strategy for life, my destiny in life. I have them all there. This is what I review. Mission in life, strategy in life, destiny in life. So my, my strategy is I've got to walk as Jesus walked. My destiny, I want to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. My mission, for those of you who care, and this is going to be radically different for every single one of us, is Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who's weary. That's why I preach the Bible. That's why I teach. That's why I'm committed to God's word to help you, to help sustain you with a word when you're weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. That's the process. It takes time. The Lord opened my ear that I was not rebellious and I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike my cheeks, to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's humility. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not... This isn't in my notes, by the way, if you're trying to follow me up there. Uh, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. There's perseverance. That's my mission in life. There's my strategy in life. Here's my destiny in life, to be... To be uh, like Jesus. So are we then living for Jesus? Colossians 1.18. Does he have first place in everything? There it is. There's a question. Does he have first place in everything? The Lord says, those who honor me, I'll honor. Those who despise me will be dis disdained. Or are we living for self? Should we seek great things for yourself? Jeremiah 45.5 says, seek them not. So how do we test how we're doing? There are going to be two things that ultimately is going to test how we're doing. Two indicators, two great ind indicators that will reveal what you are. Like Paul Johnson said in that survey back at that 
uh, Baptist school, Arlington Baptist, a Christian school years ago. When you blow away all the smoke, what are the significant people in your life? What are they really living for? I would just say the two indicators that really reveal what you're going to live for. Number one, what's really going to reveal it ultimately, ultimately will be the judgment seat of Christ. It'll reveal it. Each man's work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. If he has survived, that means if you look at verse 12, his KPIs, his key performance indicators, the verse 12 right above it says his KPIs are gold, silver, precious stones. That's what he's poured his life into, gold, silver, and precious stones. But the ones that are burned up, verse 12 says, it's the wood, hay, stubble. It'll be revealed ultimately what is driving our lives and turning our lives on Ultimately, it's going to be revealed. And I'll tell you what else is going to reveal it. Presently, right now, it's, it's the people, that, it's our family, it's our friends, it's our community that will reveal it to us. And my prayer, my prayer for all of us, Meryl Tenney is an incredible Greek scholar. Um, he, I think he ended up teaching at Wheaton, I believe. But uh, he went to Harvard, got his Greek degrees from Harvard, and uh, he taught Greek for years. And so Merrill Tinney, just, I just, he wrote a poem for, he had three kids, he, he wrote this poem for his son. And it just reveals the KPIs of his heart. Just, just listen to this. This is what I cry for my own self, that this would be me. So here's this poem to his son. This is gold, listen, this is gold, silver, and precious stones, okay? To you, O son of mine, and I cannot give a vast estate of wide and fertile lands, but I keep for you the whilst I live unstained hands. I have no blazon scutian that ensures your path to eminence and worldly fame. Longer than empty heraldry endures a blameless name. I have no treasure chest of gold refined, no hoarded wealth of clinking, glittering pelf. I give to you my hand, my heart, my mind, all of myself. I can exert no mighty influence to make a place for you in men's affairs, but left to God and secret audience, unceasing prayers. I cannot, though I would, be always near to guard your steps with a parental rod. I trust your soul to God who holds you dear, your Father's God. What is going to be the legacy you will leave? What kind of success will you be? Really, what are your goals, your key performance indicators for 2018. Well, let's stand up and we'll pray and then we're also going to sing sing a song. Uh, Lord, I just pray that we would be much like Merrill Tinney and choose today what we're going to live for in 2018 
And uh, may we determine to strive after uh, those things that will stand the test of time, gold and silver and precious stones. Um, And that not only stand the test of time, but also stand the test of fire. Uh, That those things that will make an eternal difference in people's lives, those things that will last for all eternity. May we all in 2018 have as our strategy, 1 John 2, 6, to walk as you walked and to have as our destiny, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.